0: I just want to start with a question. My question is this. Have you ever had the feeling that God has abandoned you? It's that feeling that's in your gut, and sometimes it tells you that God doesn't care about you, about your situation, about what's going on. Or that God has rejected you entirely, and He's left you on your own, and you're, you've got to deal with it yourself sometimes it comes after we fall into sin. We fall into some level of sin, and we're in the dumps, and we feel like, how could God be anywhere near me right now after all that I've done, after all that I've fallen into? Sometimes it comes when we've been watching a little bit too much of the news, and we look at the world, and we look at the state that the world's in, and we wonder, what is happening out there? What is God's plan? And other times it comes after you receive terrible news. Someone's passed away. Something horrible has happened. And that normal feeling of closeness you have to God, that normal feeling of joy and gratitude is something that was your former time. It's not your life now. All that's left is a feeling of loneliness and this harsh and hard work. Christmas is a story of people who find themselves in that situation. A lot of people don't know the context for which Christmas occurred. Israel had lived for 400 years without profit, without any guidance, without any words of scripture, having gone from national crisis to national crisis, suffering at the end of powerful pagan empires and finding themselves with this strange feeling of abandonment. What is God doing? What What is happening? If you don't understand this context of Christmas, you won't understand the promise of Christmas. If you don't understand how the love of God works itself out in history, you won't know how to cope when it feels like he is abandoned. And what's so amazing in Luke is he starts his gospel with a woman, Elizabeth, who felt as though God had been silent to her cries. Elizabeth cried out for a child, for a baby, for many years, waiting and waiting until the possibility of having children passed from her. And she came to terms with her barrenness. But we learn, in the first week that Shem was preaching to you, that God had heard her cry. And God did show up in her life, in his good time. And he was not only going to bless her with a child, but he was going to bless her with a son, who would perform many great things for the Lord. And the amazing thing about John the Baptist, who was going to be born, is he was the first prophet that we know of that God sent to his people in that 400 years of silence. It would be that first light, the little bits, of rays of sunshine coming up above the horizon, in preparation for the arrival of the king. And so, I want to see how this passage we have today really answers that feeling of abandonment, but most importantly, gives us an amazing sense of hope for the future. And so, I have three points for you. My first point is uh, the birth of a prophet. My second point is the return of prophecy, and my third point is the arrival of the word. So let's get into it. We're picking up in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to break up our passage in three sections. So we'll read the first section. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy <laughs> to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring about what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? the hand of the Lord was with him. We've got a lot to unpack. Okay, so you remember Zechariah, in our first week, he was offering incense in the temple. He was chosen by Lot, he entered in, and as he's offering incense, an angel, the angel Gabriel, appears to him and promises him, you will have a son in your old age. Now you might think that the righteous priest, Zechariah, he's going to be awestruck, This amazing thing has happened in front of him. This baby him and his wife have been longing for for all these years. Finally, it's happened. He doesn't react like that at all, does he? The first week we learned, his reaction was cynical and it was unbelievable. He thought, this isn't going to happen. We're old. We've already come to terms with the fact that we're not going to have children. And then, The angel struck Zechariah with muteness, which means he wasn't able to talk. His tongue was tied, basically, for the next nine months, until all the things that the angel Gabriel said would happen would come to pass. Now, unbelief before God, which is what Zechariah had, is a much more serious sin than we give it credit for. We feel, often, before God, our doubts doubts, are warranted. We deserve to have them. And that if God is going to make promises to us, it is on him to prove to us that he is capable of doing this. But the people who think like that forget who they are talking to. They're not talking to some guy. They're talking to the one who formed the stars, who fashioned the world, who set the lines and boundaries of oceans and rotation of planets. How in the world would it be difficult for the God who has done all these things to open up the womb of an elderly woman? And I'll just bring it down to our level. We know the sting of unbelief. And I'll show you why we know the sting of uh, of unbelief. When someone doesn't believe is capable of following through on something, you might say to someone, oh, I intend to do this, or here's a promise I'm going to make. And it's a bit of a sting when someone says, hmm, we'll see. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Why? Why does that hurt? Because they are doubting us. They don't believe we're either capable of what we said, we're consistent enough, or that we're not even willing enough to follow through on our word. Either way, it shows that that person doesn't think highly of us. We know unbelief. We know how it hurts us when people don't believe in us. And then here we have Zechariah, a priest well versed in the Old Testament. He knows. All the miracles performed in the Old Testament, like Sarah, the mother of Samson, Hannah and Samuel. He knows that God has done this before, but it's one thing to have it performed for them in the Scriptures. It's another thing for it to happen to Him in real life, as He is. For Zechariah, these kinds of things don't happen for people like him. That's kind of for the other people people that have important things happen in their lives, not Zechariah. Can you relate to right? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever limited what God can do for you because you don't think he will do it for you? You're this special category of person that God doesn't show up for. Our unbelief is offensive to God. I don't want to, you know, sugarcoat it or downplay it. It is very offensive to God. Zechariah wasn't cursed with silence like this because the angel was feeling a little cranky that day. You'd think seeing an angel would be enough to prove to him that God was being serious in that moment. And yet, Zechariah didn't believe. Despite all this, God has mercy. The curse that he places upon Zechariah was momentary, nine months. And in that nine months, Zechariah had to sit there, mute, watching God perform his promises right before his eyes. And God, he was busy being faithful to his word. Month by month, that little infant John was growing in the womb of his elderly mother, sustained, healthy, and strong. And the same God who sustained this little baby in the womb, sustains him through childbirth, and Luke tells us that this birth ended up being a whole village affair. Now, ladies who have had children, I I wonder, would you appreciate having the whole village Super invested in this, having them all around you, involved in every little intimate detail. Even there on the eighth day, when you go and circumcise your son, I know most people would be like, "Ah, we need a little bit of a, a little bit of privacy, please, village." But the village wasn't going to give it to them because of the amazing circumstances of his birth. And now, when circumcision came around in the Jewish custom, that was when you would name the child. And Zechariah can't name the child, and so they go to Elizabeth and they say. Let's name him Zechariah after his father. And Elizabeth's like, no, 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 we're not doing that at all. We're going to name him John. Why? Because that is what the angel said. John would be his name. And they were confused because no one in their family was called John. Because at this time, generally, if you're going to name a son, you want to name him after like, kind of your family. You don't want to pick... Not Unlike our day, when we're picking a name, you know, you go through the list of like the top 1,000 names, and if your kid's name is in it, don't pick that name for your child. It's not the same for this time. They wanted names that were in the family. And the name John was not in their family. And so they go to Zechariah, and he manages to scribble down on his tablet what he wants his son to be called, and that's John. Just as the angel Gabriel had said. Did you notice, that was the moment when all things were fulfilled. He showed that tablet, he named his son, he was able to speak. Just as the angel had said. And this further solidified in the mind of the community who were there hoping that God was going to do some amazing things, and he did. God was pre- present to them in such a tangible way that the fear of the Lord, it says, came upon them, and the word quickly spread to all the surrounding villages. And the hot topic of all the people was the identity of John. Who then will this child be? It's a good question. Because John the Baptist is a very, very important figure. It was so important that all the four Gospels take care to introduce him. Luke even details the events of his amazing birth. Jesus even says in Matthew eleven eleven that John was the greatest man to have ever lived. That's like grace. But Luke follows up by saying, For the hand of the Lord was with him. With who? The little baby John. We know that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Elizabeth. We know that he was set apart by God to do amazing things. But we can never lose sight of this. The same God who formed this life, the same God who sustained him, the same God who indwelled him, and this, it was the same God who was with him. And it is true for all of us. Apart from God, we can do nothing. Apart from his good pleasure, we will have nothing. All of it is by grace. Even the greatest man to have ever lived, all by grace, all because the hand of the Lord sustained him and was with him. He would not have amounted to anything apart from God. God deserves all the credit, for he sustains, gifts, upholds, and empowers. There's not a single cell, a hair follicle, an IQ point, or a heartbeat, or breath, apart from the mercy of God on all people the righteous, and the unjust. And in that moment, that Zechariah's mouth opened, prophecy came back to Israel. And that's my second point, the return of prophecy. Let's keep reading verse 6. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from above, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who paid us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. But we're going to stop the day. Cut his prophecy in half. So it's very dense. What we see here is the word of God has now returned to Israel. Now, it may have been a prophecy was occurring before Zechariah. I'm not saying that this is the first recorded prophecy since Malachi, but it is the first recorded prophecy that we find in scripture since Malachi. It is the first noteworthy prophecy that God selected to put in his scriptures so that all may read them. In that 400 years of silence. And it's worth noting that Zechariah first was filled with the Holy Spirit, for there is no prophecy that occurs apart from the, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that the content of Zechariah's prophecy it isn't really that much about his son, is it? It's about a different woman's son, Mary's son, Jesus. Zechariah knows that his son has an enormous ministry to perform, yet the focus of all this ministry is on Christ. In fact, John's entire existence will be to glorify Christ, to be a foreigner to Christ, to prepare the nation for Christ. His entire purpose is to point to Jesus. And really, is that not the role that we all play as followers of Christ? It says in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, what is the chief end of man? And I'm sure someone here knows the answer. What is it? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yeah, good work. And this is exactly the purpose of John. This is John's purpose, to point way with Israel to their king, to glorify Jesus. Zechariah's first praises God for visiting and redeeming His people. He knows that the primary ministry of this Messiah would be that of rescue, to rescue, redeem, ransom, deliver God's people. He would ransom them, ransom captive Israel, as the song says, from the power of sin and the devil. And Zechariah uses this language here, raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Now, has anyone here been to a rodeo before? Well, some of you guys may have seen a bull when he is very ticked off. And that bull is fierce. And the horn came to represent power and strength. Kind of that wild, untamed strength, uh, when you're thinking of that bull charging around the cage. Uh, Alternatively, it could be the horn that you would blow in a battlefield. For instance, Joshua in the book of Joshua had a ram's horn, and he would blow into it. How was your communication? Imagine for a second, we're all at war, you have 10,000 men, there are no uh, cell phones, there's no radios, how are you gonna communicate with 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 men? Well, they would blow horns. Very loud horns that would communicate, like two blasts means advance, three blasts means withdrawal. That's how they would communicate to each other. But it was also a rallying cry. It was something that would rouse the troops, encourage them, bolster their strength, get them psyched so they could get in and win this battle. And in a sense, you can see Jesus as that battle cry, that horn to rally around because when you rally around this horn, that is where you will find salvation. That's where you're going to find the victory in the battle. If you go off and do your own thing, you're going to go off and get destroyed. Where do you need to be? Where the horn of salvation is. And we will have no victory over sin, no victory over the devil, and definitely no victory over death if we do not heed the blast of the horn and rally around our people. Only there can we be saved from the enemies that Zechariah speaks about here safe from all who hate us as it says in first corinthians 15 25 to 26 paul says this he says for he jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed <coughs> why is god doing all this why not just leave israel to their fate? they've abandoned him They've walked in a lot of covenant unfaithfulness for so long. He's exiled them. He's punished them. Why not abandon them? Zechariah like tells us, because God is faithful. He has not abandoned Israel, nor has the sin of Israel overcome his plans and purposes. God will be faithful to the covenant. Remember that covenant in our Genesis series, right? Who did he make it to? Abraham. What are you promising? To bless him and through him to bless all the families of the world. That includes you. Christ would be the seed, the offspring that would come from Abraham, direct fulfillment of all that was spoken in all of the Old Testament. And this was proof that God would fulfill all that he has said. Have a listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. He says that the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. How true. Zechariah and Paul's point here is that God will always fulfill his word. And no faithlessness of men and women, no denying of the truth, will stop God's will from triumph in the end. He knows we sorry, we know that he is true. We know that he will never let us down, whether in life or in death. And he will hold us firmly in his love until we meet him face to face. See what Paul tells us here God hasn't abandoned us. Who's doing the abandonment in that passage? Who's denying whom? We're denying him. Zechariah and Elizabeth prove that God is faithful to those who love him, he is faithful to all who trust him. He is a firm foundation, a trustworthy refuge, and a faithful provider. The worst thing we can do is swerve from this truth and deny Him, either by our words or by our actions. Because outside of Christ, there is no other salvation. Outside of Christ, there is no other blood that you can plead to pay for your ransom. Outside of Christ, there is no other possibility of being reconciled to God. The only one that is doing the abandoning is us abandoning God. It says here, if we deny Him, He'll deny us. Our good deeds can't do it. No performance, no ritual, no love shown will uh, secure our salvation. Only the blood of Christ shed for sinners. Once that work has been done on us, Zechariah says, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, what is it, might serve Him without fear In holiness, Righteousness before him all our days. Now Zechariah is alluding to the Exodus. When Moses cried to Pharaoh and said, Release my people. And we think that the only content about it is, let my people go. You know, I let them out of slavery. But there were there was a purpose. They needed to be let free from slavery. To go into what? Does any of you guys remember that? Worship and worship. Worship to serve him. Without interference from Pharaoh, without interference from that pagan nation, the deliverance promised by this prophecy was that as Israel was delivered from their enemies in Egypt, so will Israel then be delivered from all their enemies. So the question naturally arises: Who are the enemies? Who are we talking about? Who what well, what do we need to be rescued from? What do we need to be uh, ransomed from? Now, what would the Jewish mind have immediately thought of? They'd look around, see a Roman soldier, and they say, Oh, there he is. This is the guy that this Messiah is going to free us from. These dreaded oppressors who violently subjugated us and continue to oppress us. But is that really the enemy that Jesus came to rescue Israel from? They're actually kind of small fish in comparison to some other enemies they have. So what are these enemies? Zechariah doesn't tell us. But the rest of the New Testament does, especially Jesus and his apostles. See, the New Testament holds forth these three enemies. You guys will have heard them before. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three things that ultimately keep us from returning to God and giving our lives to him. See, the world, the world enculturates you into its rebellion. I chose that word enculturate specifically because the world exerts a significant amount of pressure on you to make you behave in a certain way and think in a certain way and do things in a certain way. And it is very hard to break free from that. Anyone who tells you that, oh, I'm not beholden to these things, you know, just give them a little bit of a, oh, okay. Okay, because the world is powerful. It has huge effects on us. The next one the flesh you yourself and get enticed constantly into rebellion and the last one is the devil and how what does he do he deceives you into rebellion he justifies it he makes excuses for it and he leads you into it thinking that you're actually headed towards life these three things are powerful enemies they're a broad path, and they lead many to destruction but in christ for those of us who are chosen the narrow way they have rejected the world and its systems they have rejected the passions of their flesh and they have rejected the devil and his lies and this is the first step to becoming a christian i don't know if you knew that but one of the first steps to becoming a christian is to reject sin to turn from sin to repent and turn to christ to receive the holy spirit to turn away from all these enemies and then to serve god as zechariah says here without fear in holiness and righteousness for all our days and so my question is this, I wonder, does this describe you? Have I just described you? Are you enemies with the world? Or are you friends with the world? Or maybe even a little bit of friends with the world. This is an important question. I'll tell you why. James 4.4 4 communicates the seriousness with us when he says, You adulterous people, in James 4.4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, that word hostility, with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Woo! That's a tough word, isn't it? It's a hard word. What about your flesh? Have you come to peace with your violent outbursts, your lust, your envy? Do you make excuses for it? try to reconcile the lies of the devil with the word of God? Are you often bewitched and entranced by every new wind of doctrine or every new take on God? Probably make a bit uncomfortable now, isn't it? See, if Zechariah tells us that we are delivered from these enemies, shouldn't you expect to see people delivered from these enemies? Yet, if we are taken captive by him, we might be in a very bad predicament. But there is hope. To, this is my third point the arrival of the word. Verse 76. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall be us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. the child grew and became strong in spirit, he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So you've got to understand that what is happening on Christmas is something so enormous. It wasn't merely the birth of this boy who's going to grow up to become a king. Because there are many boys who have been born in this world who would be kings of various nations. It wasn't merely the birth of a boy who would die for our sins. It was the arrival of God into his creation. It was God coming into his world in what theologians call the Incarnation. It was when God was embodied in human flesh. He came down and he assumed the same bodies that we all have right here. And God set aside this man, John the Baptist, to do the ministry of prepping the Jews for the arrival of God. Think about that for a second. Let's say that I come to you and I say to you, you are going to be the person that preps Australia for the arrival of God probably run the other way, wouldn't you? You'd be like, I do not want to do that. That's like, whew, Australia, man, try to get Australia to turn around and, whew, if I knew how to do it, I'd be doing it right now, okay? Well, the angel, he prophesied that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then uh, he sort of paraphrases and expands his prophecy. And we see in Malachi 4, 5 to 6, he said, "Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, I don't know if you noticed, it sounded kind of nice at Malachi. Oh, yeah, this guy's being sent. And then it kind of gets worse and worse and worse as the passage goes on. This setting of Elijah is not necessarily the sun, things are going to go well in Israel. This man who would fulfil the role of Elijah would bring with it heart change. And if that heart change doesn't take place, God prophesies to set the land apart from destruction. So who is this Elijah? Well, you guys would know who Elijah is. He kind of shows up out of nowhere when you read 1 Kings 17. He's just there. Right? Who is Elijah? He shows up. We don't know about his past, we don't know about his upbringing. But we learn that he has a word of judgment for the people of Israel. A severe drought was coming like nothing they'd seen before. He delivers this warning, and then he flees into the wilderness. And Elijah's ministry really was this ministry of uh, kind of judgment. It was this wild man of God. He became the figure of the wild, godly man. The man who lived in wild places outside of social centers, wearing bizarre clothing and eating bizarre food and speaking words of judgment over a wayward society. He wasn't a tame man in any stretch of the imagination. He's not the kind of guy you go to to get helpful life advice. He's the kind of guy you go to and then you walk away in tears and sackcloth and repenting. He's that kind of guy. When he challenges the priests of Baal, you may remember them, he defeats them by the power of God and then he goes and he kills 450 priests of Baal. He was he was the kind of guy, if killing some priests of Baal was on the agenda, he was totally fine with it. He was happy to go do it. He was this... Wild man. And he says that John the Baptist was going to come and be a wild man like Elijah. He's going to have the same sort of ministry. He might not have the whole killing the priest of Baal thing, but he was going to have some hard words with the nation of Israel to prepare them for all that's coming. His entire ministry was really to get the people of Israel to get their hearts ready to receive the Lord, to turn from their idolatry, to repent of their sins, and follow this new thing that the Lord is doing He says Israel, Zechariah in his prophecy said, Israel's in a dark place, just as they were kind of in the days of Elijah. And Zechariah sees them, he says, they're sitting in darkness, they're in the shadow of death. This is who Israel is. All these events happened during times when it seemed that God had abandoned them. And yet they didn't understand that God was doing something new through the Baptist. They didn't understand just how willing God was to be close to them, nor how near he would come. And when the prophets spoke of the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, they were actually preparing the way of the Lord. He was coming. The Lord was going to meet them. Zechariah says, the rises will visit us. That sun would appear on the horizon. The darkness is now over. It sounds beautiful, doesn't it? it wasn't beautiful for everyone. Those who love darkness, sunrise is the worst thing, because it dispels it. it, exposes things, it shows works as evil. But when the sunrise came and Jesus was there in front of them, the change that they would require to undergo was too much for them. They rejected Jesus. They didn't want the sunrise. So, if you're struggling, you feel like God has abandoned you, the first question you need to ask is this Do you want the sunrise? Or have you kind of come to terms with your way of life and you kind of like it, even though you complain about it at the times? There are many in Australia who love to complain, and yet they kind of love their life the way it is and they don't really want change. You know when someone complains to you about a situation at work, and then you give them five different things they can do to fix it, and you quickly find out that they don't actually want to fix their problem, they just want to complain to you? Well, brother or sister, do you cry out to God feeling that he has abandoned you, or you don't want the sunrise? If you are in a dark place, look to the light. It may hurt, you may feel like a vampire, and the light comes out, ah, the light is blinding, but the light will, instead of destroying you, heal you. The light will, instead of causing you pain, bring you, through that pain, joy. If you feel unloved, look to the God who for love sent his son to you. Look to the God who does love you, who will comfort every wrong and wipe away every tear. But it takes a great deal of trust, it takes a great deal of faith. I'm just going to leave you with one question: Do you want the sunlight? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful message of your Son Jesus, and we thank you for all who have received Him, who have seen the light coming over the horizon, and instead of rejecting the light and hiding from it, they have embraced it. And Lord, we thank you for the lives that we live now that's living in the fullness of your life. I pray, Lord, for those who have seen your light and know that it is good, that they will give into it and love you as you deserve to be. And for those who are in dark places and feel that like you are abandoned, shine brightly upon them and show them that it is not you who are abandoned down but they who are abandoned you. Would they return to you, Lord? Would they love you? Would they give you their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength? Would they love their neighbours and themselves? We thank you, Lord, for the tangible way we've seen Christmas. Your wonderful love displayed for all. That you have not abandoned us. That you have wanted to identify us with us so closely that you came and were among us and died for us in the this. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name and